The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain where they could be alone. There, in their presence, he was transfigured. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them. They were talking with him. Then Peter spoke to Jesus. Lord, he said, it is wonderful for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when suddenly a bright cloud covered them with shadow. And from the cloud there came a voice which said, This is my son, the beloved. He enjoys my favor. Listen to him. When they heard this, the disciples fell on their faces, overcome with fear. But Jesus came up and touched them. Stand up, he said. Do not be afraid. And when they raised their eyes, they saw no one but only Jesus. As they came down from the mountain, Jesus gave them this order. Tell no one about the vision until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. I love that image of that cross you have back there with the vine growing on it. I am the vine, you are the branches. I want to circle back to that because we know that discipleship means taking up our cross. But it's not an invitation to misery. I think everyone who's lived the Christian life knows that. Yeah, there's hardship, sure. But that's not really Jesus' chief concern, that we just bleed and cry and weep the whole way. The cross is a kind of frame that we grow on, isn't it? With him. Anyway, I want to circle back to that because it's a beautiful image that you have to meditate on. Um, today's the transfiguration. When I was looking, like, you know, the, the, there's so much tradition that we can draw on. And there's ample stuff written on the incarnation, God becoming flesh. There's ample stuff written on even Palm Sunday and Easter and, um, you know, baptism as a mystery and all these, all these particular things. I couldn't find too much, to be honest, written on the transfiguration that caught me. There were sermons, but they sort of all said similar things, which isn't a bad thing. <laughs> you know, it's good that they have consensus. Um, one thing that they said that I think we know is that Jesus gathered this friendship to him, the twelve, and then out of the twelve there was an even closer band, uh, Peter, James, and John, and he showed them this privileged glimpse of his personhood, his full uh, his full self as God, with them. Why? Because before long, all the secrecy about Jesus was going to be blown, and he was going to go to Jerusalem, and they, they were going to put him on the cross, not knowing that he's the vine, but thinking that he's something quite other. And so, um, you know, up until this point, Jesus has been saying to people, don't tell such and such that I healed you, don't publicize this, go to the law, go to the temple, just do what's prescribed. You know, the time will come for this to be broadcast, but it's not now. Well, the time is coming. And so he gathers them and he gives them this glimpse of hope. Because when they see the cross, they're going to be scandalized. And they were, weren't they? Every single one of them, except for the youngest, John, uh, ran away. You think, thank God they saw it, because if they didn't see it, they might have done something much more dramatic than running away. <laughs> you know, running away is not the worst thing they could have done. Um, we can probably all empathize with that. It's not a sin to feel fear, by the way. Like, like none of your emotions are sins. It's really what we do in response to them. You know, 
Uh, none of us really contrives our emotions, do we? You don't decide how you're going to feel at the start of the day. You just feel it. Um, and so it's a, it's a journey. It's a question of, well, how do I walk with this thing that's um, arrived upon me? Okay, so, so that's what the fathers say. They say that to save the disciples the scandal of the cross and that they wouldn't lose all hope, Jesus allows them this glimpse um, to, to basically validate his claims that he will die, but unlike anyone, he will rise. And those who follow him will share in his death, okay, that's what baptism is. It's a dying with Christ so that we might share in his resurrection. Um, I've been saying this to some of the communities. It's probably a, a strange thing to, to you know, put on the table, but I think it's worth saying because um, who we think Jesus is, not that it's all about our heads, but, but our heads are involved here. Who we think Jesus is, is important. If we've got the idea about who Jesus Christ is wrong, things start to sort of slide off track a little bit. Um, so I'll say just two main things with regards to that. I think it's fair to say that when we think of absolutely everything that there is, think of like everything in existence, including God, everything in existence, if you boil it down to its crudest division, there's God, which is one substance, we might say. It's a bit of a philosophical word, but we say one substance is God, whatever God is made out of. And the other substance is every other created thing. Remember the words in Genesis, when God created, he created out of nothing, which means he didn't kind of take himself and build stuff out of his own being, but it was literally out of nothing. That's important. It means God is one thing, everything else is a different thing. Yeah? The reason God creates in the first place is because God desires that creation and that is us as well, that creation would share in his own blessed life. These are the opening lines of the catechism, that we would share in his own perfect joy and peace and grace, his own blessed life. Uh, therefore, the whole of life's journey is a kind of being unified to him. And there's a big stumbling block in that story, which is what we call sin. But God has dealt with that as well, thank God. So that's, so that's this thing about two substances. Now, I want to get this clear about Jesus because I've heard um, really kind of wonky ideas about the, the makeup of who Jesus is. You've heard the word hypostasis. I know I'm using a lot of philosophical words here, but these words are important because they're very accurate. When we say um, hypostasis, we're saying Jesus is fully human, fully divine, 100% both, right? And this was important. Like the early church saw it as very important to, to get this straight in their minds as the early centuries were unraveling. Jesus, of course, as we read the Gospels, he's a confusing kind of figure. Like he confused those who were closest to him. He confused them when he told them straight what he was saying. They're still like, no, I don't get it, Lord. <laughs> um, but this is what the church came, came to, to find. And it took a while to get there because you look at Jesus and naturally people would say, oh, he seems to have some divine powers. Maybe he's like a very... Maybe he's a very empowered human. No. Oh, um, he's clearly operating with the authority of God here. Maybe he's God with a kind of human costume. No. All of these fall short to the mystery of who Jesus is. Fully human, 
fully divine. Um, I've heard one prominent speaker say that there's a difference. This, it offends me intellectually, and I think it ought to offend all of us. He says there's a difference between Jesus and Christ insofar as we worship Christ, but we don't really care about that Nazarene guy. See where the problems arise? Like these are, these are serious problems. So let's get this clear. Was there ever a point at which Jesus was not God? The church's answer to that is no. Yeah, the answer to that is no. From the moment of his, con from his conception onwards, Jesus is um, God made flesh. God having entered into human history. God desiring to be so close to the human reality that he hides nothing of himself from it. He touches all of our fleshiness. And he goes so far as his life unravels to go and touch the leper, to touch the sick person, to touch the outcast, because God actually happens to love our flesh. He made it in his image. He loves it. He finds it adorable. Um, we find it adorable as well, which is why we put it in a monstrance and kneel here in prayer. Um, it's the flesh of Christ that we're, that we're adoring there. I say all that because in this narrative here, I've heard it said, and it's wrong, I've heard it said that at this point, Jesus is sort of becoming God, so to speak. You know, up until this point, he was just, he's kind of, you know, figuring out his journey, and <laughs> this is not correct, okay? This is not the church's mind at all. Um, Jesus has been slowly following his, his mission. Everything he says, everything he does, he says, this is not my ideas. What I say, I've heard from the Father. What I do, I've seen the Father doing, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. His privileged knowledge as God with us. Therefore, what he's showing us is not transubstantiation. He's not suddenly becoming something different, which is what happens in the Eucharist. Even though it looks the same, the inner reality of it changes. The substance transitions into something else. But actually, in the transfiguration, the opposite happens. The substance does not undergo any change at all. Jesus is Jesus is Jesus forever. Remember that line in Hebrews? He's the same yesterday, today, and always. But something does change. Not the substance, but the figure. The transfiguration. His outer appearance starts to appear different to them because he wants to show them something more of who he is. Um, you'll notice that when he's transfigured, his divinity shines through. It doesn't destroy his humanity. It's not like once they see the presence of God, Jesus' flesh just kind of burns up, turns into dust. No. Because when God is with us, God actually fulfills and heals and restores us. God is not a threat to us. The only threat is that we would lose the presence of God among us. That's the real threat. Um, but God has gone to great measures to not let that happen, if we don't want it to happen. And I don't think any of us do. So this is part of what's happening here. <clears throat> now that's about Jesus, okay? If we've got a good little Christological thing there, that's good. The second implication, finally, is for us. Because when Jesus gathers us to himself, he does it in the most intimate fashion you could imagine. They knew in the ancient world, and we do as well, sadly. It should be eradicated by now, but it isn't. They knew in the ancient world what it was to have a slave. Here's the master, here's a slave, and you kind of belong to me. You're where I am. Jesus says, I don't call you slaves. I don't call you servants. I call you friends. 
it gets even more intimate than that. At the foot of the cross, Jesus says to John, the one disciple who didn't run away, behold your mother. And to Mary, behold your son. In other words, I don't just call you friends, I call you family. It gets even more intimate than that. Because we know that in the whole Christian life, we're being drawn so deeply into the body of Christ that we become his members. I don't just call you, I don't certainly call you slaves. I don't just call you friends. I don't even just call you family. I call you me. I call you to be part of me. That's pretty intimate. As the prayers say, and we, we hear this more in the ascension, but where the head has gone, we the body will follow. If the head has been transfigured, don't worry, we're going to share in the glory that Jesus is making manifest. If the head undergoes the passion, okay, sure, we're going to have to brave our own crosses. If the head has died and risen, yeah, that's our trajectory as well. Down, but back up into the glory of the bosom of God. I think that brings us to the vine. It's a beautifully intimate image, isn't it? When Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, there is a distinction. None of us thinks we're God here. <laughs> but we're so caught up in the, in the membership of Christ, in his person, that the same divine sap that flows through him flows through you so that you produce fruit of the Holy Spirit. I mean, what gives us the right to produce fruit of the Holy Spirit? Think about that for a second. <laughs> it's kind of a crazy privilege, isn't it? But we can do it because we are members of the body. We're branches on the vine. Let's put our roots down deep into Jesus the vine, Jesus the living bread, the one who is transfigured in our midst and desires also to transfigure us, to make us radiate with his love, with his peace and joy.